Lord, have mercy on the roads that we must travel now. And that's basically what the song says, Lord, have mercy. So there's a lot I want to talk about today. And I think the first thing that we should talk about is um, what do we do? What do we do when something seems so immense that we feel like we can't do anything? Um, Today, uh, when I was at the federal court filing documentation, um, one gentleman that was there said, well, that's, you know, uh, while we were waiting, he was like, wow, you know, this is, that's a really big deal that you're filing something like this. You know, <laughs> the chief judge in this courthouse demands that everyone wears masks. I said, he's like, you know, I don't, get it, just leave it alone. I was like, God's with me. How can I lose? And even if my case was to cause a loss, right? It's still a win because I'm putting them all on their toes. Why would anyone say that? If I'm protecting not only my child, but other people and putting myself in the line of fire, why would I lose? How do you lose? You don't. So then I thought of David and Goliath, because this is exactly what's happening. Remember, these are big companies. I also, for days now, have been thinking, there's all these lawsuits that can be filed, all these interventions. Well, we don't want to file it against Biden because we don't even consider him president. So why even acknowledge him as some? Uh, So where do we find the target? for our class action that we're doing. We have to find the right target and we have to start at some spot. We have to start somewhere. So we have to find the target in order to knock it out, right? We have to find the target. And I think today, all of us will probably see what the real target is. And it's not the president. I mean, it could be the secretary, the education secretary uh, in regards to the schools, but we need to hit harder and bigger and stronger and bolder with no fear. Because let me tell you something. They're terrified of us. They are terrified of each and every one of us. They're terrified of us talking. They're terrified of us speaking up. They're terrified. The minute you lift your head up, they are terrified. So 
I think we should watch this and listen to the words. And for those listening, just close your eyes and try to imagine three minutes of a story you've heard many, many times before. To secure the promised land, the Israelites must defeat the Philistines. But King Saul has lost God's blessing. And now he faces the Philistines' greatest champion, Goliath. Fight me, Israelites! You win! And the Philistines will be your slaves! I win! And you will be our slaves! Someone must fight him! Not you, Jonathan. The warrior who defeats him will be a rich man! Not one man in Israel! Not one of God's people! I'll do it. You're no soldier, you're a shepherd. Yes, a shepherd. So I protect my sheep, God will protect me. Where is your faith? Where is your God? I will kill him. You'll need this. I'll be better without it. Yea, though I walk in the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. You are with me. Thy rod and staff, they comfort me. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. saw right there what happened everyone laughed at david coming up with a little rock everyone scoffed they laughed now are you gonna go up against a giant how do you go up against corporations how do you go up against the media how do you go up against all these corrupt clowns 
Well, we're doing it. First, we need to take the challenge. Then we strike. And we strike where it hurts. He got it right where he needed to. You expend them. You tire them. You know, it's like the court systems are built to not let you use them. It seems like they're built to break you completely. I want to talk about my case, but I think the best show to do talking about the case I filed is with an expert in masks. And I want to organize that for next Wednesday. I'm going to have him on Wednesday or Tuesday. I'm going to try to have him on and that way you guys can ask him questions and he can walk through everything for you. Um, Stephen Petty is an amazing man. Um, uh, he's very smart. And like I said, I was trying to get a hold of him in 2020, but I was using like the online submission forms. There must've been something there. Um, he's already won a case for Kentucky. And now I hope that um, I win the case too. Just so you know, my phone is on and ready to ring because I'm still waiting a call from the judge. So my phone is on. So you may hear me have to answer the phone. Just letting you know, giving you a heads up on that. Um, Because I'm waiting for him to tell me what's going on. Now, as we saw David and Goliath, you saw a lot of things. Who the heck are you? You don't have a title in Tiara. Who are you, little mom? Who are you, this? Who are you? Look at me. I'm here. I have my studio. I used to do this. I got this title in Tiara. I'm the best. You need to listen to me. Like, who are you standing up, right? <laughs> And it reminds me of a scene where the titles and tiaras walk in. And you remember that? What is it? Big Trouble in Little China where the guy was doing all this kung fu. Nah, 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 nah. And then it's like, boom, bullet, done, finished, right? This is it. You're getting a lot of that from a lot of people that supposedly are for, you know, freedom. Yeah, you know, but, you know, that's, that's you can't. Well, let me show you exactly what it is. You know, I was having a conversation with, I, I'm not going to name who, and it's like, you know, it explicitly states in the Constitution that we're supposed to be overthrowing our government when they're not working for us. I mean, we have an American founding, which is the right to a revolution, right? So I'm going to share this um, video by Learn Liberty. It's three minutes talking about is there a right to revolution according to our founding fathers? We're at a breaking point. It's 1776 and the colonists have tried repeatedly to reconcile with England. They realize now they have to declare independence and start the uphill battle to fight for their freedom. Once they made that decision, they felt compelled to explain why it is that their relationship with England suffered from irreconcilable differences. And that's how we got the Declaration of Independence. This document was tricky to write for a couple of reasons. First, they had been claiming their rights as Englishmen. Once you separate from England, can't do that anymore. Second, 
This puts into writing that they're rebelling against the king, and rebelling against the king is no joke. If you lose, you hang. Don't pass go, don't collect $200, just straight to jail, and then the hangman's block. What's their argument in the Declaration of Independence? They're claiming that we, as a free people, have a right to stand up to an oppressor. Now today, this seems perfectly understandable. Only a government established by the people that protects the rights of the people deserves their support, right? Well, at the time, this was a very radical idea. No one had tried to claim this as a reason to rebel. This concept was radical, new, and based in philosophy, specifically the philosophy of John Locke, who created a theory about why people can declare independence from an oppressive government. This is another important philosophical strain that underlies the revolution. It combines with radical Whig theory to create a good foundation for a new constitutional order. While radical Whig theory emphasizes civic virtue and awareness of government power, Lockean liberalism emphasizes rights protection and the responsibility of government. Locke develops this theory by looking at the origin of government. According to him, human beings start out in an ahistorical state of nature. In that state, they are all free and equal. There's a problem, though. We're all selfish and irrational. There is no objective party to mediate disputes. For him, therefore, it's necessary for us to come into society and create a government. In order to do this, it has to be possible for a people to rebel if the government isn't protecting their rights. So, if the leader of a government doesn't protect your rights, off with his head. Just kidding. But it is appropriate, according to Lockean theory, for a people to overthrow their government if they fail in this crucial respect. Locke claims there's no difference between an unjust king and a thief. Therefore, in the same way that we can stop a thief, we can overthrow a king. It's through a Lockean understanding of government by consent that we can move from seeing ourselves as British citizens, seeking the justice of the crown, to human beings born free and equal, confronting an oppressive ruler. We see these ideas reflected in the Declaration of Independence. England had regularly violated their rights. To that end, in the Declaration, there's 27 indictments against the king. This looks a lot like a list of indictments against a criminal. Let's look at an example. He has erected a multitude of new offices and sent hither swarms of officers to harass our people and eat out their substance. He sounds like a mob boss. Because of his actions, we were free to dissolve our allegiance to him and form a new society based on the consent of the governed. And we see this in the Declaration's preamble. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. They are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just power from the consent of the governed. It's important to see how radical this was for the time. Monarchs ran states of our size, and the leader was considered sovereign. We completely flipped that around. We said the people were the sovereign power, very shocking, and said that the government was answerable to the people, even more shocking. Now you might be thinking, that's the end of the story. We've declared independence, and now we live happily ever after as a new country, right? Wrong. This is where the real work begins. Now we have to create new institutions based on radical philosophy. We have to get a diverse group of people to agree, and then we have to get people to accept these new institutions. This is no easy task, as we'll see in the concluding video. It's July, 1776. We're a small but scrappy colony of a large empire. We've just declared our independence and committed treason. We don't have a large military force, we aren't set up to fight a multi-front war, and we're trying to create new institutions based on radical ideas created by philosophers. Whoa, kind of sounds like we're in the same place. We have a small military, meaning it's just the people. Not really small, we just don't have, what did Biden say we needed? Mm, nukes and, and F-16s? Yeah, we don't have that. 
We are trying to recreate the government that was intended. We're not really ready for war and we're declaring our independence. So we've got our work cut out for us. It's important to see that all the theory in the world is not gonna save the Americans from the very real consequences of their actions. The British, after all, didn't read the declaration and say, well, they've got a good claim. They read it as a declaration of war. And the founders knew this. At the end of the declaration, it reads, with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortune, and our sacred honor. If the founders hadn't won, they would hang. As Benjamin Franklin quipped, we must all hang together, or assuredly, we will hang separately. But winning the war is just the first problem. Now that we're free of the English yoke, we have to set up a new government. Panic! How do we do this? We start with some locking principles. We know that all men are created equal, and that governments derive their just power from the consent of the governed. Okay, that's a good starting point, but what does consent of the governed mean? According to a strict understanding of Lockean philosophy, every individual in the United States would have to say, I consent to the laws of the United States. Logistically, this is obviously very problematic, and even harder when you have the British knocking down your door. And this is where we see that the founders didn't rely exclusively on Lockean liberalism when they were setting things up. Whig theory comes back to play a role when they're trying to establish a stable and free government. For Whigs, people have to be connected to their government through a longer and older tradition. The founders tie these two theories together in order to create institutions that protect individual liberty without becoming so radically democratic that they threaten stability. They use these theories to tackle some of the most important questions of the day, such as how powerful should the federal government be? How do you distribute the executive, legislative, and judicial powers? How do you prosecute this war? How do you pay collectively for this war? This is the great experiment that they initiated when they declared independence. It is not one they took lightly. It required great sacrifice, great statesmanship, and a consensus among the people that their cause was just. For that reason, it's important to reflect on the significance of this action, both within the United States and around the world. We decided we were not going to submit to a heavy-handed government. We look to philosophy to clarify our understanding of freedom and to understand how it is that we can build a new democratic constitutional order. Understanding the incredible character you have to have in order to embark on this task is very important. Understanding the incredible risks associated with revolution will help you see why it is they're so rare and so often unsuccessful. I hope you spend a little time thinking about how amazing it is that the founders declared that if people suffer under an oppressive rule, it is their right, their duty to throw off that government. We should be alive to these concerns today as we continue to think through what it means to live in a free society and what we expect from our government. And if it happens to be that you're watching this around the 4th of July, I hope you think through these issues while enjoying hamburgers and fireworks. Thank you very much. So basically, are we oppressed right now? We kind of are. Do we need to shed blood? Fuck no, we don't. We have this, and this is how we can reframe it. This experiment, as they called it, for 245 years has been ongoing, and we realize where the holes are and where we need to plug them. So that way we can fix this. Because in essence, uh, we do have the right to overthrow the government. And it should be a government that we adhere to, a government that we trust, right, supposedly. And it's none of those right now because the laws aren't working, right? There's uh, terms that are being thrown out. We need to figure out how to overthrow the government. How do you overthrow a government that isn't really your government because you didn't elect them? You then suddenly realize, holy shit, someone stole my freedom while I was sleepwalking. So how do I fix this? That's the question that everyone is asking themselves. How the heck did we get here? 
How did we get here? How is this happening? How is this happening? Have you thought why this is happening and how? Because it's a big deal, isn't it? That we have a government that we did not elect. We all know that. Even the people that are pretending, yeah, I'm happy with it, know that. So how do we fix this is the question. How do you fix something that you didn't break all in one go, right? Because <laughs> we kind of did. Everybody participated in this shit show that we're in. Knowingly, willingly, unknowingly, unwillingly, still participated. So how do we fix it is the question. It's got to be somewhere where we can pay attention. Well, I'm going to show you where. I'm going to show you what things have been happening in the background. And I want you to pay attention. We've heard the word coup go around for a long, long time. But as I've said before, I've written this playbook. Believe me or not. I mean, then you have to say, well, how does she know the stuff she knows? I don't know. Maybe because I wrote the fucking playbook. And I'll show you instances of how this has happened before. Uh, maybe not in America. But let me tell you something. The people running this coup are geniuses because they've done this many, many times. Buckle up criteria for picking these particular 14 overthrows? Uh, actually, when I started out writing this book, my idea was to write about all the times the U.S. had overthrown a foreign government. So my first step was to look around for the list. But I soon discovered that there is no such list. Nobody's ever actually compiled a list of what countries we've overthrown. And as I began to research this, I realize the reason for that. The reason is that it's not always clear-cut. When did the U.S. actually overthrow a government? When did we just intervene heavily to help someone else overthrow a government? When did we protect a regime that was friendly to us against being overthrown? Would that count? So uh, there's a big gray area here. I decided I had to make up my own list and set up my own criteria. So my criteria was only to write about cases in which the United States was the decisive factor in the overthrow of a foreign government. Yeah, I wasn't going to include any cases where the U.S. helped out or was part of a coalition, or even places where the U.S. intervened over many years but never actually overthrew a government. It was with those criteria that I came up with the list of the 14 countries that I cover in my book. Well, I'd like to get into the details of a few of those coups as illustrative. But before we do, I'd like to look at some of the broader points you make in your book. For example, what does the rise of multinational corporations have to do with regime change? It has everything to do with regime change and with America's position in the world. At the end of the 19th century, there was a great change going on inside the United States. First of all, the frontier was officially declared closed in 1890. There was no more room to expand to undiscovered areas within North America. Secondly, American manufacturing businesses and American farm businesses were really mastering the economies of scale. They were producing huge amounts of material, consuming ever larger amounts of resources. They couldn't get all that they needed in the United States, either resources or markets. 
So all of this led them to start looking abroad. It was the rise of these companies that had international interests that brought the U.S. government into the business of defending American commercial interests abroad. Sometimes you hear this phrase, business follows the flag. Actually, it's the other way around. Well, now, could we take a look at the Iran operation in 1953? It was called Operation Ajax. Could you tell us who the leader of Iran Mossadegh was and, and why Britain and then later the United States wanted to overthrow him? It's a fascinating story because it shows how differently the world looked from cosmopolitan Western capitals and from poor capitals like Tehran. What happened in Iran was uh, very similar to what happened in many other countries after World War II. Uh, partly because of the rhetoric of Franklin Roosevelt, the winds of nationalism and self-determination and national development and patriotism were blowing through Asia and Africa and Latin America. In all these countries, there was a great desire for people to take control of their own destiny. In Iran, that sentiment focused on one particular injustice. All of the oil in Iran, thanks to a corrupt deal that had been reached with a former monarch, was 100% owned by one company, and that company was British and owned mainly by the British government. What it meant was that Britain, through the ownership of this one company, controlled all the discovery, all the refining, all the production, and all the sales of all the oil in Iran. This is what powered British industry and allowed the British people to live at a high standard of living all during the 1920s and 30s and 40s. It's what powered the Royal Navy as it projected power all over the world. England doesn't have any oil. No other British colony had oil. All the oil that England used during this period came from Iran. So pay attention. So while they were milking Iran, BP was milking Iran for all their oil, there was a war going on in Europe, and Hitler was coming. Pay attention. In the meantime, Iranians were living in one of the lowest, most miserable standards of living anywhere in the world. So in the period after World War II, there was a great popular sentiment in Iran, let's nationalize our oil industry. Let's take it back from this British company. And the parliament passed a law to that effect unanimously, and the elected leader who was charged to carry out this law was Mohammad Mossadegh. So Mossadegh became the prime minister of Iran who was leading the nationalistic campaign to take back control of the Iranian oil industry. That got the British hugely upset through a long series of machinations, they brought the Americans into the project. And in the summer of 1953, the CIA sent an agent into Iran who, in the space of just a few weeks, threw the country into chaos and secured the overthrow of the democratically elected leader, Mohammad Mossadegh. So up until 1953, Iran had been a functioning democracy. Had we been able to tolerate it and work with it instead of overthrow it, we might have had a thriving democracy in the heart of the Muslim Middle East. Some of the tactics were, were very interesting and I think have been repeated. The picking a retired general as a coup leader, someone we groomed to be the leader, was reminiscent of Chalabi and, and Iraq, the bribery of various people. Could you talk about how we engineered it? There are so 
certainly a number of patterns that run through these operations, and they were quite visible in Iran. One that I think is very interesting has to do with motive. We talked earlier about how the original motivation of many of these operations is economic, but the motivation morphs a couple of times. When the companies that are aggrieved present their grievances to the U.S. government, the government then convinces itself that it's not acting for economic reasons, but because any government that would try to bother an American company must be anti-American, must be the tool of one of our foreign enemies, that therefore we are justified in attacking it. And then, of course, the motivation morphs another time when it has to be presented to the public. That's when it becomes this, uh, we only did it to save them. The, the American press then, including your old employer, the New York Times, ended up playing an important role in characterizing Mossadegh. True, Mossadegh was portrayed in the West largely as kind of an unbalanced, bizarre uh, old man, and it only seemed the logical conclusion that if the leader of some faraway, very poor and weak country wanted to stand up to the giant powers of the world, political and economic, and reject the system by which the world was being ruled, almost automatically you think the guy has to be some kind of an imbalanced, crazed person. And that was sort of the way he was portrayed in the U.S. It went even further when the next year we overthrew President Darbenz in Guatemala. Uh, his name was blackened in the U.S. as a communist and an enemy of the United States, not just uh, because of his actions, but because the United Fruit Company, the biggest American corporation in Guatemala, hired a very sophisticated public relations concern whose job was systematically to feed detrimental information and biased information about Guatemala to American reporters. Are you paying attention? So the manipulation of the American press and public opinion, which definitely played a role in the run-up to our invasion of Iraq, is nothing new. This is something that leaders in the U.S. as well as in many other countries have learned how to do. Now, the operation in, in Iran in 53 wasn't very subtle. Wasn't Kermit Roosevelt operating within Iran and hiring gangs of people to help them? Probably what Kermit Roosevelt did would not have been possible if Iran had been the dictatorship that the U.S. said it was. The fact that Kermit Roosevelt and his agents were able to go around and bribe newspaper editors and politicians and religious leaders and military officers is a reflection of the fact that there was no heavy secret police presence in that country. It's very ironic. Open society. And actually, in Iran, we wound up doing what we did in Guatemala also the next year. We overthrew an elected leader who essentially embraced American principles and replaced him with a tyrant who detested everything the United States stands for. Now, Kermit actually hired people to argue both sides of the issue in the streets, right, in order to create the illusion that there was a whole lot of unrest going on. This was a wonderful part of Kermit Roosevelt's plan. Not only did he buy out newspapers to have print articles about how evil Mossadegh was and have religious leaders denouncing Mossadegh as an atheist and create this whole public opinion campaign, but he also hired a mob of thugs to run through the streets of Tehran and beat up 
pedestrians, fire shots into stores, and break windows and shout, we love Mossadegh, we love communism. And it wasn't enough to do that. Kermit Roosevelt had an even better idea that he would hire a second mob to attack this first mob. Are you paying attention? So think of it this way. Like I said, playbook. You got Antifa breaking stuff. We love communism. We want communism. And then you hire another mob. You know, you have Antifa and BLM, which is Blue Lives Matter, Proud Boys, all these far right wingers, and you pay them to fight them. And that's how you get the PSYOP going. History repeats itself. The idea was that this would create the impression that Tehran had fallen into complete chaos and that the government was no longer able to control the situation. I don't think that the people fighting on either side of those gang wars really understood that they were all working for the CIA. So the Shah then was also brought in by the CIA. The Shah was a very scared young man at this time. It was very hard for him to persuade himself to join into this plot because he was afraid it might be dangerous for him and anything that was dangerous was well beyond what he was willing to tolerate. The Americans finally forced him into accepting the plot only on condition that he would be right next to a little private airfield and could fly out of the country if it seemed to go wrong. Sure enough, it did seem to go wrong in its first attempt. And what did the Shah do? He ran out to a little private plane at this airport and fled the country. So he wound up sitting in Rome and was having dinner in a restaurant there when some correspondents excitedly brought him in the news that there had been another attempt in Iran, and it had succeeded, and he was now being brought back into power. This guy was sitting in exile in an Italian restaurant when he was told, by the way, you can be the king again now. So it was the Americans who placed him back on the throne, and what was the long-term effect of that? He ruled for 25 years with increased repression, That repression ultimately produced the explosion of the Islamic Revolution in the late 1970s. That revolution brought to power a clique of fanatically anti-American clerics who've spent the last 25 years eagerly and sometimes very violently trying to undermine American interests all over the world. We're now heading for a huge crisis with Iran on this nuclear issue, but this nuclear issue would never have emerged. And this Islamic government in Iran would never have emerged if the United States had kept its fingers off and been patient enough not to intervene and topple the Iranian democracy in 1953. You you mentioned another democratically elected leader that we overthrew. That was Arbenz in 1954. What had he done to earn our ire? Actually, they were very similar cases, Iran and uh, Guatemala. In Guatemala, there was one huge foreign company that dominated the whole economy and controlled the only resource of the country. The same thing had been true in Iran. In Guatemala, the resource was bananas, and the company was the United Fruit Company. This was a uniquely powerful company in the U.S., very well connected in the Eisenhower administration. Now... Guatemala had been under classic Latin American tyranny for many years. In 1944, there was a civil uprising and democracy began in Guatemala. 
The same trends of nationalism were felt there, they were felt in Iran. In Guatemala, though, that nationalism was focused towards taking over the oil company. In Guatemala, it was focused toward getting something better out of the fruit company. Uh, the Guatemalan Congress passed a land reform law requiring that any entity in Guatemala that had more than 100,000 acres of unused land had to sell it to the government to be distributed to peasants. Well, the only company that fit into that category was United Fruit, which had half a million acres of land that it was just keeping for a possible future need. The Guatemalan government passed a law requiring that it sell that land to the government for use by peasants. The United Fruit Company was very upset. It went back to Washington to complain. Soon, a whole public relations campaign was launched in the United States portraying Arbenz as a communist and the Guatemalan government as a tool of the Kremlin. On the back of this campaign, the United States organized a modest little exile invasion and a bombing campaign by CIA planes. That, that invasion that you account in such detail in your book, it's almost humorous if it weren't really the overthrow of a government. It has to do with the kind of a phony invasion and false radio reports. Could you describe that in some detail? It really was a case in which the CIA decided that it would try to use some Guatemalan exiles as a cover for an American CIA operation. So they recruited a small gang of Guatemalan exiles and sent them across the border from Honduras. And then as soon as they crossed in Honduras, they just stopped and sat there just a couple of miles inside the border. That was the invasion. But meanwhile, there was a CIA radio station that was purportedly broadcasting from within the country, the great progress of the invasion? Exactly. The CIA had set up a radio station, and they had all this stuff taped in advance in Miami, that was portraying this handful of ragged exiles in a few cars as an advancing army that was being uh, swollen by crowds of fervent Guatemalan patriots and deserting military units as it swept across the Guatemalan highlands toward the capital. In order to underline these false reports, the CIA sent planes over Guatemala City and over several other areas to bomb them to make it seem as if there was some kind of a coordinated attack going on. So all of this was kind of a reflection of how Governments in poor countries were not yet equipped to deal with the kinds of subversive tools that the CIA had come up with. Later on, these governments became more clever and they became more difficult for covert operations to work. That's why someone like Saddam Hussein was never vulnerable to covert action. But back in those days, it was very easy for a rich and powerful country like the United States to throw a weak and poor country like Iran or Guatemala into chaos. So what happened to Arbenz and what was the fallout for the country? Arbenz was finally forced to resign in 1954. The government imposed by the United States proved to be extremely repressive. It provoked a, an uprising that led to a 30-year civil war that was the most savage episode in the modern history of Latin America killing far more people than Chile and Argentina and Brazil conflicts put together. 
Guatemala was not only bathed in blood for the next 30 years, but it also served as a political example to a whole generation of rising leaders in Latin America. Let me give you just one example. During the period when Arbenz was in office and Guatemala was a democracy, a number of people from Latin American countries came to Guatemala just to watch and see what was happening there since democracy was something new in Latin America. One of these was a young Argentine doctor named Che Guevara. Che Guevara was actually in Guatemala at the time the U.S. overthrew the government, and he had watched the whole process that led up to that overthrow. He actually had to go into uh, asylum on the night of the coup in the Mexican embassy. After a few days, he was allowed to leave the country. He went to Mexico, and there he met Fidel Castro, who was planning his revolution back in Cuba. Now, Castro was very interested in Guatemala. He wanted to hear from Che everything that had gone on there. So Che went on and explained the whole story of how the U.S. had corrupted the Congress and manipulated the press and had its friends in the military uh, working for the subversive cause. They had long discussions about this. And Castro and Che Guevara reached a conclusion based on the events of Guatemala. Their conclusion was, if we get into power, it's not going to be possible for us to push a reform program within the framework of democracy. The U.S. won't allow that. They'll come in because we'll be bothering American companies, and they'll use our democratic institutions like political parties and the press to subvert the country and overthrow us. So when we get to power, the first thing we do is close all newspapers, ban political parties, outlaw demonstrations and dissent, and we'll wipe away the entire army, replace it with our own army. So this is the lesson that the United States, through its intervention in Guatemala, taught to a whole generation of rising leaders in Latin America. You cannot have real reform in democracy. If you want to try something radical to change the qualities of life in Latin America, you have to do it under a dictatorship. And that led to untold pain for Latin America. And now, Stephen, as you say, overthrowing a poor agrarian a country is not as hard as overthrowing an industrial country. And that brings us to Chile, which is more developed. And I was particularly fascinated by your account of how we economically sabotaged Chile. C could you talk about how that coup was born and then the economic strangulation, which put pressure on the country? The Chile case was a very interesting one, in part because it came out of the same impulses that led us to the coups in Guatemala and Iran. In Chile, just as in those two countries, there was one giant national resource. In Chile's case, it was copper. And just as in Iran and Guatemala, rising nationalist sentiment led people in the country to want to control that resource. Salvador Allende was the elected president who implemented that nationalization decree. And that set off huge alarm bells in Washington. So what the United States set out to do was to strangle Chile economically. This was part of the program that once Chile had been brought to its knees economically, it'd be much easier to overthrow the regime militarily. What we did is we started voting against loans for Chile and international institutions. We would downgrade the quality, uh, reliability ratings of Chilean financial instruments in the U.S. so that American banks would not loan there. The businesses coordinated a plan where they wouldn't send any replacement parts 
for any mechanical goods in Chile over a period of years. Some of them were ITT. ITT was one of the main companies involved in this project. Kennecott Copper. Kennecott Copper and Anaconda were the two others. Pepsi-Cola played a very important role. In in fact, wasn't there a personal contact between President Nixon and someone at Pepsi-Cola that played into this? During the period when Richard Nixon was out of office, between the time he left the uh, vice presidency in the early 60s and the time he came back as president, he worked as an international lawyer, and one of his principal clients was Pepsi-Cola. Nixon played a very important legal role for Pepsi-Cola during the mid-60s, and became very well connected with the Pepsi-Cola corporate leadership. The very first person to come to Washington and alert Nixon to the changes in Chile, the impending election of Allende and all the trouble it might mean for the United States, was the Chilean director of Pepsi-Cola. That was a person that had direct access to Nixon and to highest echelons in his administration. So certainly the role of businesses in coordination with the U.S. government in creating an economic climate that led Chile toward instability was very, very important in setting the country on the way to its disaster of 1973. In addition to that, there was a necessity for an assassination of an important general, right? Yes, it's true. There was a important Chilean general who was a, a strong believer in constitutional rule. Chile had been one of the greatest democratic success stories in Latin American history. This was partly due to the fact that the military was strictly apolitical, since the military and many other Latin American countries had been the source of instability. But this general was unwilling to break with the Chilean uh, political tradition of uh, military uh, non-interference. The United States realized that this guy had to be assassinated if the coup was going to succeed. We actually sent in a diplomatic pouch a pistol and ammunition to conspirators inside the Chilean army. And the day after we did that, the general we didn't like was indeed assassinated. That opened up the way to the coup. What was the final scene for the coup for Allende? President Allende was at home in bed very early in the morning at dawn when the first news came that something unusual was happening. He had a little bunker there, might have wanted to make a stand, but the uh, presidential palace, which was on in another part of town, had traditionally been the symbol of Chilean democracy. So Allende decided he wanted to make his last stand there. He jumped into a car with some bodyguards and friends, about two dozen altogether, They ran into the palace. Soon after that, bombing began. The palace was being bombed by uh, Chilean military. I just want to mention that happened on September 11th, 1973. Military pilots. There was apparently some demand to Allende to surrender. It's still unclear. But in the end, military uh, commandos charged into his office. As far as we know, he killed himself. Again, I repeat, 9-11-1973. And what was the fallout for Chile? Chile went through a terrible period of repression. There were tens of thousands of murders. There were hundreds of thousands of tortures. Chile went from being the example of democratic Latin America 
to the example of the extremes of repression in Latin America. It has now slowly begun to climb out of its pit, but uh, it's a country that's very deeply scarred. Thank you very much, Mr. Kenzer. It was a pleasure. Thank you. How amazing was that? That's been out in the open for you to hear for many, 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 many years. But see, I wanted you guys to hear it from someone else. Me saying it, it's like, now I'm listening to Tori. Well, you'll be surprised who does. And you'll be surprised who's been talking to you for a very, very long time. In, in many faces and voices and places. 9-11. Well, not the 9. The 11 is the important part. Okay. The 11 is the important part. That's why I said when I filed my case and my case number was 1711, it was bizarre because it's a repetitive number for me across many, many times that I have fought. And for me, it's the initiation. The 11 is always the point of war. The number that is before it tells you where it's going. 9-11, 9-11, The angels stand firm. Now, we heard about all these coups that have been conducted by apparently the CIA, which is obviously a private company, a private company, right? And so now we're going to circle into the United States. And before we talk about the coup happening here, right? The coup happening here, we're going to take a break. And we're going to see how there was a bloodless coup as well in history. Just so you can see how things come full, full, full circle. We're gathered here today to remember a morning that started very much like this one. Parents dropped off their children at school. Travelers stood in line at airports and getting ready to board flights. People began their early meetings. Then our whole world changed. America was under attack, first at the World Trade Center, then here at the Pentagon, and then in Pennsylvania. The horror and anguish of that dark day were seared into our national memory forever. Innocent men, women, and children whose lives were taken so needlessly. For the families with us on this anniversary, we know that not a single day goes by when you don't think about the loved one stolen from your life. Today, our entire nation grieves with you and with every family of those 2,977 innocent souls who were murdered by terrorists 16 years ago. Each family here today represents a son or daughter, a sister or brother, a mother or father who was taken from you on that terrible, terrible day. But no force on earth can ever take away your memories, diminish your love, or break your will to endure and carry on and go forward. Though we can never erase your pain or bring back those you lost, we can honor their sacrifice by pledging our resolve to do whatever we must to keep our people safe. 
On that day, not only did the world change, but we all changed. Our eyes were opened to the depths of the evil we face. But in that hour of darkness, we also came together with renewed purpose. Our differences never looked so small. Our common bonds never felt so strong. The sacrifice grounds on which we stand today are a monument to our national unity and to our strength. In the years after September 11, more than five million young men and women have joined the ranks of our great military to defend our country against barbaric forces of evil and destruction. American forces are relentlessly pursuing and destroying the enemies, all civilized people, ensuring that they never again have a safe haven to launch attacks against our country. We are making plain to these savage killers that there is no dark corner beyond our reach, no sanctuary beyond our grasp, and nowhere to hide anywhere on this very large earth. Since 9-11, nearly 7,000 service members have given their lives fighting terrorists around the globe. They came from all backgrounds, all races, all faiths, but they were all there to dedicate their lives, and they defend our one great American flag. They and every person who puts on the uniform has the love and gratitude of our entire nation. Today, as we stand on this hollowed ground, we are reminded of the timeless truth that when America is united, no force on earth can break us apart. No force. To every first responder and survivor of the attack you carry on the legacy of the friends you lost, you keep alive the memory of those who perish, and you make America proud. Very, very proud. To the family members with us today, I know that it's with a pained and heavy heart that you come back to this place. But by doing so, by choosing to persevere through the grief, the sorrow, you honor your heroes. You renew our courage and you strengthen all of us. You really do. You strengthen all of us. that reminds us today of who we are, what we stand for, and why we fight. Woven into that beautiful flag is the story of our resolve. We have overcome every challenge, every single challenge, every one of them.
We've triumphed over every evil and remained united as one nation under God. America does not bend. We do not waver. And we will never, ever yield. So here at this memorial, with hearts both sad and determined, we honor every hero who keeps us safe and free. And we pledge to work together, to fight together, and to overcome together every enemy and obstacle that's ever in our path. Our values will endure. Our people will thrive. Our nation will prevail, and the memory of our loved ones will never, ever die. Thank you. May God bless you. May God forever bless the great United States of America. Thank you very much. Not much of an intermission, is it? United, we stand always. And many might ask, what is so significant of that sacrifice, as the president called it, of those nearly 3,000 people? There are many that are unaccounted for. All those people scrambling that day, not knowing what is happening and where they're going, kind of like our U.S. military when they first entered Afghanistan. You have reports from generals telling the world, I think General Flynn actually shared his, that the CIA would not tell them anything, that they would not give them intelligence. As I've said before, and many hate me for saying it, generals take orders and they must abide by the orders that they are given. And if we've manipulated other nations and we've become experts at it, do you not think that now those weapons that we fine tune to put everyone in place are pointed at you? Patrick Berge's upset because they used a weapon of mass destruction, psychological destruction, and deployed it on the people. You know what? It's a lot harder for someone to take down an enemy and take power away from an enemy. And a lot easier if they thought you were their friend. And that example is obviously evident from what we saw with the bloodless coup during Napoleon's time. Here's some real history so you understand how throughout time attempts to overthrow good leaders, bad leaders, whatever leaders, are usually done with the outmost deception. You become their friend. You become their essential worker. And then suddenly, you're their friend. And what happens? You take it all away. In 1799, Napoleon Bonaparte seized power in France by plotting a coup within another coup. And he did it all without shedding a drop of blood. One year before the coup, France was at war with Great Britain. 
and Russia, Austria, the Ottoman Empire, and some German and Italian states. But Napoleon was focused on Great Britain and wanted to cut off the country's roots to its profitable trading outposts in India. Even though much of his fleet was captured or destroyed by the British at the Battle of the Nile, Napoleon still managed to capture and hold Egypt to cut off British trade routes and even attack targets deeper into the Ottoman Empire. But back home, the French weren't faring as well, suffering a series of defeats against their European enemies across the first half of 1799. The French people became fed up with their current system of government, known as the Directory, the fourth different system of government since the beginning of the French Revolution ten years earlier. The Directory system included two legislative bodies, the Council of 500, a chamber of elected men that proposed laws, and the Council of Ancients, 250 elected men over 40 years old that approved laws. The two bodies also worked together to choose the directors themselves, five executives of equal power responsible for enforcing laws. But by 1799, the directory had brought France into war and near economic ruin. The people largely looked to the country's military for leadership. This is where Napoleon saw his chance. When British ships temporarily retreated from France's ports, Napoleon left Egypt and returned home a hero. Meanwhile, another prominent Frenchman had been plotting to seize power from the weakened directory. Emmanuel Joseph CIS, better known by his religious title, the Abbe CIS, was elected as a director in May of 1799. He had long been one of the most influential political figures for his writings that partly inspired the French Revolution. But CIS hated the directory, finding the executive too weak to effectively govern. So soon after Napoleon's return to Paris, the two men met in secret. They agreed to a coup that would allow CIS to place himself at the head of a new government, formed with the help of Napoleon and his loyal army. There were other conspirators, including Minister of Foreign Affairs Tally Run and Lucien Bonaparte, President of the Council of 500 and Napoleon's younger brother. On the morning of 18 Brumaire, or November 9th, the plan was set into motion. CIS and Lucien Bonaparte informed their respective legislative bodies there was a plot to overthrow the government. But they lied and said it was being led by the Jacobins, the party that had carried out France's reign of terror five years earlier. The lawmakers were moved for their safety to a palace in Saint-Cloud, a suburb of France. Conveniently, Napoleon himself was placed in charge of their protection. Meanwhile, three of the five directors had resigned in coordination with the coup. CIS, his ally Roger Duco, and Paul Barras, a former lover of Napoleon's wife Josephine. Tally Run had been given 2 million francs to bribe Barras to resign, but he resigned on his own, so Tally Run just pocketed the money for himself. The next day, the Council of Ancients were receptive to Napoleon's argument that the government needed to be reorganized, but the Council of 500 needed more convincing. So Napoleon marched into their chamber with grenadiers by his side. The legislators erupted in anger, some charging at Napoleon with daggers. Amidst the chaos, Lucien Bonaparte used the attacks on his brother as an excuse to dissolve the Council of 500. Napoleon's troops dispersed the rest of the Council. The Council of Ancients then dissolved the Constitution, replacing the Directory with three consuls, CIS, Roger Duco, and Napoleon. CIS's coup was complete, but Napoleon was not interested in sharing power. The new government quickly drew up the constitution of the year 8, and Napoleon made sure he was its chief editor. 
With the new constitution, Napoleon wrested control away from CIS, using his supreme popularity to declare himself first consul, with CIS and Duco secondary in power. Napoleon had succeeded in his coup within a coup, setting himself up to ultimately become dictator, and all without a single life lost. A coup within a coup. So weird. So weird, so weird, so weird. Kind of feels like we're living that, aren't we? Kind of feels like, mm, I don't know. Now, talking about meddling, right? It's important that we um, visit another portion of meddling before we get into school boards and other things. Found this really interesting foreign elections video. We should really listen to this. The CIA has accused Russia of trying to meddle in the U.S. presidential election in order to elect Donald Trump. But this could be a classic case of the pot calling the kettle black. The CIA itself knows a thing or two about how to influence foreign elections. During the Cold War, the United States deemed it necessary to stop the spread of communism around the world. Sometimes that involved sponsoring a military coup to overthrow a democratically elected leader with communist ties. That's when the CIA would get involved. In 1953, the CIA, along with the British government, supported a military coup to overthrow the democratically elected prime minister of Iran, Mohammad Mossadegh. Mossadegh had nationalized Iran's British Anglo-Iranian oil company, potentially damaging Western economic interests. He was also supported by Iran's Communist Party, even though he wasn't communist himself. In 1954, the CIA organized a military coup to oust Guatemala's democratically elected president, Jacobo Arbenz. He was seen as having ties to the USSR and promoting economic policies that would hurt the United Fruit Company, an American business known for its bananas. In reality, he was attempting to create a middle class by redistributing unused land owned by the company and demanding they pay evaded taxes. On the other side of the globe, No Dinh Diem was the US-supported leader of South Vietnam during the beginning of the Vietnam War. But in an interesting twist, the Kennedy administration decided he was an ineffective leader at a time when they were attempting to defeat the Communist North. So in 1963, the CIA helped plan a military coup that ended with Diem's assassination. But the long-term consequences of each of these involvements weren't exactly what the CIA had hoped for. The revolutionary icon Che Guevara was deeply troubled by the Guatemalan military coup, which led to his hatred of the United States and involvement in the communist Cuban revolution. And back in Guatemala, the coup was followed by a civil war spanning three decades and leaving 200,000 people missing or dead. The United States spent over a decade fighting in Vietnam after the assassination of No Dinh Diem, resulting in over 58,000 American casualties before abandoning the war. Even North Vietnamese leader Ho Chi Minh described Diem's removal as stupid. And in Iran, the U.S.-supported monarchy was overthrown in 1979 during the Iranian Revolution, leading to tensions between the two nations that continue to this day. If Russia had a heavy hand in the U.S. elections, that would definitely be a slap in the face for democracy. But the United States is certainly not innocent when it comes to influencing foreign elections. The CIA has released documents that prove their involvement in these cases and many more. But if Russia can learn anything from the CIA's own meddling, they may want to be careful of what they wish for. So, let me give you something that no one's ever told you. Communism was created, well, what we 
have been told has been communism with all these nations. They closed down their borders. They locked everything down for the same reason that Kim Jong-un did, to disallow takeover by the corporations. Che Guevara and Fidel got together and they were like, shit, we don't want the Americans to do this. They set up our internet. They're doing all this crap. They're taking over. They're taking over our country and they're pissed because we're not allowing them to drill oil. They're not allowing us to take the bananas. They're not allowing us to take the diamonds, the copper, the silver, the gold, the artifacts, nothing. They're not allowing them because it's theirs. So basically all these nations have close their borders down to not allow these corporations to get in. And we have been sitting there thinking that we're fighting for good. That's the trick. We forced them, other nations, to do it because they thought they were protecting their people. That's basically it. We forced them because they thought that they were protecting their people. This is why we have these insane Antifa people glorifying Che Guevara. Because in the core of it, he did it to protect his people. At the core of it, Fidel did it to protect his people. But in essence, they were killing their own people, which made it okay to take them out. You see how that trick goes? And now they're doing it again, but they're doing it to ourselves because they need us to topple. We're the last fort standing against the corporations. And what does America have to offer? Oil? Sure. Niobium? Sure. People. People that innovate. People. You can't wake them up. You can't tell them you're taking over. So then you have to think, 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 think. Okay, so how do these corporations come to be? Because if you notice every single overthrow that we have gone into every single war, it's because they're not letting us steal their shit. This is why they were like, look, Trump's like, nationalism is bad. It's this. It's Hitler-esque. It's this. Hitler started with the same idea. Fuck all the banks. Fuck all this. And then someone was in his ear saying they were Jews. So he's like, yep, let's get rid of all the Jews. When it wasn't just all the Jews. Look at them. The corporations. Pay attention. Pay attention. It's not a problem of today. They didn't just come about just now. It's been there for a while. For eons and eons and eons. We could go back to the Roman Empire, same shit, different title. Titles and tiaras. And every single time in history, the people awaken and they revolt. I mean, they crucified a man for just speaking. You see, this is how it is. This is what they're scared of. That you realize that you, the consumer, are actually the one being consumed. Keep the people stupid and ready to serve us. That's the way it is. Our nation is better than that. The people of the United States are better than that. We were created to give people a focus while we took them all down one by one. Our founders created this because they wanted none of that. And yet, uh, 
yet uh, while the ink was still wet in the hands, taking it to the printer. Even if you stumbled along the way, they had already started the plot. How can we use this to our advantage? Hmm. How can we use this to our advantage? We can continue the history that we fed them. I mean, because we just invented electricity after we signed the documents. Stop. History is not what they tell you. Yeah, we only got cameras like at the end of them. Really? We got pictures from way back when, if you're paying attention. Yeah, but paper, you know, even in a time capsule, crumbles. See, it's so weird how things just come into focus. And then as you step back, you're like, holy crap, this is an operation that has been deployed over and over and over and over again. Non-stop. So again, how do you win? Just like Napoleon did, right? You take the power away from someone that thinks you're their friend. Can you see the operation yet? Okay. So I've said for many, many, many years, enjoy the show. Soon, and I'm hoping, I'm hoping that next week I will have one of the most incredible documentaries you will ever see. It will dispel everything. You will understand what that means. And you will see how these tools were deployed on you. And it's just not me talking. And we have to thank Hunter Biden for it. His devices have been very, very fruitful. Because when you see what kind of production, you're going to see that the little village that has been secluded, that example that I gave about being bubbled in, thinking everyone's dying, other people think you're under alien invasion, is really happening right now. And you know, to make sure that you can't see it, I mean... Now they're sending students home for COVID. It's going nuts. We need to quarantine, ramp it up, mandate this, that, the other. They're going to lock you up. So how do we fix it so we can see this? Because you're going to love the way the story ends. Again, you never take them as an enemy. You sit with your friends and you're their friends for a couple decades, watching, noting. Sometimes you even think they are your friends or you see a glimmer of hope that they might be good. Well, here's where we're filing our lawsuit. Who are we gonna target in order to get this sorted? Who are we the people suing? Think about it. Would it be Fauci? Fuck Fauci. Who are we suing? Take a look at this. This is the structure of how all of this works. Have you seen this? Now we're talking CDC as an arm of the Department of Health and Human Services. The same Department of Health and Human Services that does a lot of atrocious things. So this is their department. 
So look at all of these positions. Deputy Director for Infection Diseases, Deputy Director for Non-Infectious Diseases, Deputy Director for Public Health Science and Surveillance, Deputy Director for Public Health Service and Implementation Science, National Institute for Occupational Safety and Health. You know, that's really weird because most of the tox the environmental toxicologists and industrial hygienists are there. Why haven't they done any recommendations to health and human services? That's so bizarre. Maybe we should ask them that question during the lawsuit. And all of them feed into the office of the director, which also has chief of staff, operating officer, CDC, Washington director. Why do you need one in Washington only? If you're an agency, you can operate from everywhere. Why do you need one specifically for Washington? Office of Equal Opportunity and Employment Opportunity, sorry. Associate Director for Communications, PR. Associate Director for Laboratory Science and Safety. Feeds back into the National Institute of Occupational Safety and Health. Where are these clowns talking about masks? Nowhere to be found. Associate Director for Policy and Strategy, another fancy way of PR. So we have the PR arm and then the operating arm that feed into the office of the director. Director, principal, deputy director, chief medical officer, director of intergovernmental and strategic affairs. Damn, that's pretty complicated. Pretty well distributed. And they get a shit ton of money. I don't think we need to target Fauci. I don't think we need to target Biden. I just think we need to target the Department of Health and Human Services because that's the head of the snake right there. When someone wants to take you down, they could take away your job. Guess what? You can get another one. They could take away your home. Damn. At some point, you might be able to build another one. Take away your shoes. Get another. Borrow another. Get gifted some. Take away your food. Okay, you'll go somewhere else. But the one thing that can be destroyed and you can never take back is your health. See, whenever people have their birthday or name day, I always say, I wish you many more healthy and happy ones. Because what's the point of living if you don't have health? And right now, what you didn't realize, and it was so interesting, how I sat there in that little group having edited the ACA. I know that shit inside out. You know, they needed linguists, whatever. Also, they needed some linguists for the Paralympics in Japan, but I missed that email. Regardless, <laughs> um, could have used that job. <laughs> <laughs> that contract that came along. But anyway, regardless, it all started with your health. I mean, you think Obamacare was new? Do you guys remember Clinton, Hillary Clinton's care? Hillary care, do you remember that? It's always been there. It was just wasn't the right time to do it. And they took your health. And I've been fighting for the older generations for a very long time, filing suits on their behalf, complaints on their behalf. Well, obviously giving the details and then they take it to a lawyer and do it. But yeah, Loretta Lynch got a shit ton from me. Reno, <laughs> they've gotten so many from me because you know what they did? How do you know the medication you're taking is actually medication, not part of cohort? How do you know that? I mean, now you're not even supposed to go to a pharmacy. You have to go to a preferred pharmacy. And if you check, most of these pharmacies get their medications, uh, the generic ones, directly from one 
other pharmaceutical company that makes them. Like, I don't know, Teva Pharmaceuticals in Mexico, for example. Or um, you can get the brand names, but there's going to be different doses because they want to monitor you and see how well that goes. Obviously, with the brand ones, they're going to be a little bit more careful. You die, that really hurts their brand. And this is why insurance will cost you an arm and a leg if you get brand medications. How messed up is that? Right. Slowly, they've taken away your rights to access or have knowledge in regards to your medication. You don't even know where your generics are coming from, do you? No, obviously not. Your brands, you know, if it's GSK, a.k.a. Pfizer. <laughs> Pfizer. The head of it is a fucking vet. An animal doctor. Just letting you know. So this is where we're going to target. I think this is the target. The target is the Department of Health and Human Services. That's where we need to go. Everybody else can shoot blanks. This is where we're going. Department of Health and Human Services, you know, the same Department of Health and Human Services that promotes taking your kids away from you. The same Department of Health and Human Services that hires pedos and Satanists to look after your kids. Don't believe me? Check the 2015 IG report after I called them on North Dakota and see the fucking shit that they dug up on their own people. Because even though they're corrupt as shit, when they run an investigation, see, that's the type of stuff I did to the state of North Dakota. They hated me. They hated me. There's an actual report of the stuff they found. Raping little kids, money. You know what? The auditor, I give him props. Great guy. He became state auditor. He actually heard out what was going on. Huh. They actually passed the law not allowing the auditor to do audits. Why? Because I think I talked about this before. On air. But they were, Department of Health and Human Services is also responsible for all these uh, children, fostered adoptions, you name it, whatever. They found that someone had miskeyed payments for an adoption or foster care. They were paying them, they paid them $750,000 over nine months because it was miskeyed. Do you see the Department of Health and Human Services? That's who you target. This is who you target. And when you file your lawsuit, concurrently, we're going to be filing IG requests for investigations. Now, you're going to say they're all corrupt. They're not going to do it, but they're getting a directive from the people. So, yes, they will have to do something. And along with a clash action suit, oh, boy, oh, boy, oh, boy. It's going to be crazy. So for all of you that are signing up for it, damn, we're going to take this down. I've been working on this shit for over... Ugh, I would say 12, 13 years. Remember, remember, I went back to school just to penetrate these fuckers. Got a degree out of it, which is great, because they never let me finish any educational system. They gave me all the training and no freaking documents to show it. <laughs> but I'm a walking encyclopedia. And I penetrated every single one of the areas I needed. And while I was in school, I was writing up on the Affordable Care Act. I have it all. So I'm ready. We can go target that with what we have now, which is the vax, the masks, the way they operate. We want transparency. How are you coming up with this shit? Where's your National Institute for Occupational Safety and Health arm of the CDC coming out and saying that masks freaking work? Remember, Fauci at first said masks don't work. He was like, dude, no one's going to believe this shit. 
we can't say that. And then he was like, yeah, they totally work. Cause everyone's like, just repeat it. If the whole world's saying it, huh? They're going to give in because they're idiots. They're going to bend the knee and they're going to listen to what we say because that's how stupid people are. They'll just do it because the news said so. So it's got to be true, right? That's the sound. So this is how you target things. Now, I haven't gotten a phone call from the judge, which is quite concerning. TROs are usually answered within hours because they're emergency motions. So was it not filed correctly? Is he going to wait till tomorrow morning? I'm just a little bit concerned that um, no one called me. That's very telling. I do know that they sat there and read it, but that's very, very telling that a federal judge did not respond to a temporary restraining order, which is an emergency order. I think that's a big problem. Unless he ruled and decided that he's not going to contact me. I should be a little bit concerned about that in regards to operations, but I do have faith. I have faith. This is a judge that has been on the bench for a while. He doesn't rule by politics. He's got one foot in the grave. He's semi-retired. He rules with the sense of law. So I'm really, really praying and hoping. And I hope all of you do too, because it's really important. May God guide and have happen whatever needs to be happening. Because regardless, we're still going to fight. No one's going to stop fighting. The only people that deserve freedom are the ones that are willing to fight for it. And that's what's important right now, fighting for your freedom. And yesterday, I'm glad to see that Project Veritas was involved and now they're bringing the school boards to light, right? But um, yesterday, um, here's a, a mom who went full ham on these people. I want you guys uh, to see it. Give me a second, my mouse is acting silly. Take a listen. The reason why my daughter is standing behind me is because my job as her parent is to protect her from anybody that has ill will towards her. So being that this is her first year at this high school that is world renowned and everybody knows about this school is so perfect and everybody does everything right. The first time my daughter tells me and she goes against my wishes to come out of a classroom that's disruptive to her well-being, I have an issue. I am very articulate. My children are very well read. They are, they speak their opinion. They make sure that they are clear in what they do and do not like. And for the fact that my 17 year old daughter had to come to me and said, mom, you don't understand. He's, he's, let me explain. This means that in two weeks, in 13 days, he was allowed to change my daughter's mind about some fascist crap that y'all have led in this school. This is ridiculous. I'm from Texas. So this don't go on in Texas. This does not go on in Texas. There are two grades higher than California, period. So to think that my very sound-minded daughter would go against me and my wishes and our values in our home to be able to go and support this man and he is putting her in harm's way, what the hell are y'all doing? I'm tired. How long does it have to go on before somebody says something? 
How long? How long? What are you going to do? That's the question. Get him out of here. We don't fucking care about this boy. He got to go. So that was in response to that commie teacher uh, that was brainwashing people to pray to, you know, Mao and, and Antifa and LGBT and blah, blah, blah. It's really important to understand that they have been grooming your children. They've groomed your children to not trust science because they can pick their gender. They've groomed your children to think that procreation is something well, so pedestrian. Well, they've groomed your children. Like I was shocked listening to the audio of my daughter that I won't share yet. When she said, you know, she was explaining to this, you know, staff member. Do you know that last year in my science teacher's class, Every time someone got vaccinated and showed it, everyone would applaud them and they would be congratulated. Wait, so you're saying while it was under experimentation, they're congratulating kids to go and get the experimental vaccine. And she said that. I was actually very impressed. While we sat there and listened to it with a colleague of mine, I was kind of like, damn, Phoebe, you articulate yourself way better. But what I realized was, is that these instructors, this staff, the teachers union have trained them very, very well in de-escalation techniques. That's a problem. Oh, you're so awesome. Oh, this, you know, and at the end of it, you know, there was a full de-escalation attempt. And that's where Phoebe flipped and said, well, we still haven't resolved the issue, but we have. No, we have not. You guys are still promoting these masks. You're still talking about this like it's something normal and it's not going to happen. She has requested an assembly based on her right, her First Amendment right, to address her fellow classmates. Her fellow classmates. And I think if all of us can encourage our kids to stand tall, we understand peer pressure. We've been in high school too. But you know what's so cool? One thing that we need to remember from the movies, right? It was always the ugly kid and the stupid bitchy looking chick that were like, oh, so important that everyone ran after them with their stupid groups. One thing they had in common is that they gave zero fucks what anybody thought. And you can be the nerd with the pocket protector. You could be the nerd with the tape between your eyes. You could be the meek person, the fat person, the acne face person. You could be anything. But the minute you give zero fucks, you're a god. Because guess what? You don't care. <laughs> I've I've told my children when they when they get upset, so and so upset. And I said, okay, does that so and so keep a roof over your head? No. Are they doing anything to you that nobody else can do? Like offering you friendship nobody else can. I don't know, giving you some special candy. Like, what is it? No. Are they paying your bills? No. Are they feeding you? No. Are they providing you health care? No. So why the fuck do you care what they have to say? So the minute you realize that the emoji that you have in your phone with the hand up, it's showing zero fucks. That's basically what it's saying. You're done. You're absolutely done. There's nothing that can stop you, and it's dangerous. I think someone actually contacted me on Facebook, 
and said, I saw this TikTok where a person was talking about, and I asked them to send it to me. So I don't know if you guys know which one I'm talking about. There's supposedly a viral TikTok. This was a couple of days ago, and I just read the message because I never go on Facebook. I only use it on a browser. So um, he said there was a person talking about people that say something. I always say this, you know, it is what it is, whatever. Like, oh, you and blah, 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 you know, are, you know, not talking. Oh, you're not doing this project. Oh, you're not doing it. It is what it is, you know. And you know what he said? It's the most dangerous type of person you will ever meet because they actually give zero fucks. You know, the emoji with the girl with the hand up, like it's serving, right, on the right. That means zero fucks. I give zero actual fucks. And if you start not giving a shit about people that are contributing to your happiness, boy, do things change. So when someone tells you something like, um, <laughs> you just have to do the right thing, right? Oh, and that's, that's the other one. Or you need to protect other people. I actually confronted someone today. I was like, why do you wear a mask? Uh, I just, I feel, do you feel safe? I feel safe, but I'm doing my part to help others. Like, okay. See, this is the problem. People are forced into submission because they're not, they feel like they'll be better people. I kid you not. I wish I could play this recording for you. But you know what my kid said to her? She's like, you're saying, you know, yeah, that we should have choice and whatever. And then, but you know what? It really isn't a choice because I'm not wearing a mask and I tell him I'm not going to wear a mask. But then the teacher was like, yeah, well, I had a family member who had COVID and I wear it to protect them. So basically they're telling me I'm a piece of shit because I won't do it. That's bullying. You're bullying students into wearing a mask. She clearly set it out and she's right. But my kid gives zero, actually, and I, it's because she's been through hell as a child. And the minute she learned to use her voice, which she did in 2019, and she spoke up, she doesn't care one bit because all her life, she kept her mouth shut trying to protect other people, trying to protect, you know, me, trying to protect her sister, trying to protect her dog. She kept her mouth shut to keep the peace. The minute she found her voice, she wasn't silenced. She was amplified and she was loved. And she realized, holy crap, I should never keep my mouth shut when something wrong is going on to me at any time. And I will never, ever wish upon any child to go through the hell my child went through, ever. But it shows that our mistakes, our turmoils, our crosses that we bear, our unfair circumstances where we are attacked, we are hurt physically and mentally, right, are not something to be ashamed of. It seasons you like a freaking cast iron pan. You get seasoned and you are ironclad. I have people that have reached out to me. I want to do this, but you know, I've got a history of this. I got a history of that. And I'm like, own it. Never apologize for mistakes you've made. Own it. Yeah. Okay. So I made a mistake. Then what? Does that define me forever? 
Those are badges. Every mistake you've made, every bad thing you've done, every me too picture that can come out. Jeez, you know, if I ever ran, like really ran for office, there would be so many me too's from all spectrums of sexual identification, right? Because I work with a lot of guys. So <laughs> I'm, I'm, uh, I'm not <laughs> a person that doesn't have, but I'll be like, yeah, he had a cute butt. She had a cute butt. They all had cute butts. Why not smack it? I would totally own it. I'd be like, no, it was locker room talk. You weren't there. Shut up. I own it. Oh, you did drug. I have a picture of you with some random chick's panties in your mouth. Yep, I totally did. Totally had fun. Don't remember the night, but I never did it again because I didn't remember the night. And I know there's pictures. So what? What are you going to do? Tell me I'm a bad person because I did it. Are you going to tell me that I'm a bad person? Because I did things that I saw were fun. Or you could call me a bad person because when the Russian ships would cross the port, I would run to the port harbor and just steal all the wheels of cheeses that they would throw. Why not? That shit is good cheese. You know, what are you going to call me a bad person? No, I did that. When I was young, when I was carefree, when I didn't care. I didn't care. You're a bad person. You did it. Yep, totally did. You're a bad person. You smoked on the plane when smoking isn't allowed. Well, they suck at their fire alarms. And if you have a smoke buddy, you can do that on long transatlantic flights. And no one would know. Yes, everybody has skeletons in their closet. Shit ton of them. Then what? You can wave them across. Be like, you want me to start waving yours? I can pull out some texts. It's the digital age. Let's go. That's the thing. We're, I'm, I am kind of lucky that, you know, <laughs> I grew up in an era where pictures were kind of scarce. Nobody used, you know, uh, you know, the internet like they do now. There weren't any postings and stuff. But regardless, why would you be ashamed of something you did 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years? I mean, if it's not rape or murder, then you're good. Seriously. You stole a car when you were 17. Uh, not me. I'm just saying. I remember someone saying that to a guy that we were working with years ago. He's like, well, I saw, you know, you were, you have a jewelry record. He's like, you're not supposed to see that. Those are sealed. He was like, yeah, nothing's sealed here. And he just looked at him and I was like, what the fuck do you care? At least he knows how to hotwire a car. Do you, if I need to get out, me and him are together because he's hotwiring the car. You're a loser. See, this is the way it is. When you're kids or you commit a crime, there's people out there, sold drugs, stole cars. Nobody gives a shit. It's who you are today. Everything else behind you created you today. And that's the thing. People need to realize that. So don't be scared to speak up. Don't be scared. Because that's exactly what they're scared of, you speaking up. So on that note, I wanted to say... Um, I'm going to have a victim of this whole vaccine forcing thing um, tomorrow on air with us. I think her lawyer may be accompanying us too. Because I want you to hear how she felt. I mean, just think about it. You pay, you go to college, you're almost done with your nursing degree or whatever, and you're going to class and then cops come and remove you forcibly because you did not take the experimental vaccine. That speaks volumes. That speaks volumes.
You think what you see in Australia going on and the little TikToks and the videos is something? It's coming here. I mean, first the crown does it because they can. They're all subjects. All of them are subjects. Every single one of them. And when you watch the documentary that I, I, that's being put together like right now, it's going to, this is, I know a lot of you have seen documentaries. Like I know Shadowgate was, boo, that was deep. You watch it again and again and you'll see more. Uh, or the one about the children, right? Shocking, right? This one is going to make ev all of those make complete sense to you when you realize just how everything really is a movie. It is a literal movie. These corporations, remember when you heard about Guatemala, how they were like, yeah, we wanted to distribute the land because the American fruit company was evading taxes. Do you know how they evade taxes? Jeez, you have no idea. This is why they're angry. They thought, because I was their friend, right? And they started taking over something that it would be allowed. Take that. It's going to be the most awesome documentary you've seen. I haven't um, started on the voiceovers yet, um, but it's going to be so incredible. I do not have a sneak peek for you, and I will not. It'll be like a premiere. We'll have popcorn. We'll do it on um, on a, on a weekend, and it'll be super awesome. So remember... It's a lot easier to take out a friend or someone that thought you were a friend than an enemy. So imagine how many of these losers have allies that they didn't know were not really allies. Hmm? It's just interesting. It's just very interesting. This is how you get the bloodless kids. By taking them out from within. If they're coming within and they're deploying weapons on us, I mean, we could do the same. What, what did Napoleon do? A coup within a coup. Think Jack in the Box or Pandora's Box, whichever comes first. On that note, guys, God bless. Meeting this mission, this responsibility for preserving the peace, which I believe is a responsibility peculiar to our country, that we cannot shirk our responsibility as the leader of the free world because we're the only one that can do it. And therefore, the burden of maintaining the peace falls on us. And to maintain that peace requires strength. Americanism, not globalism, will be our credo as long as we are led by politicians who will not put America first then we can be assured that other nations will not treat America with respect, the respect that we deserve. We will make America strong again. We will make America proud again. We will make America safe again.
And we will make America great again. I want peace through strength. people whose heroes live not only in the past, but all around us, defending hope, pride, and defending the American way. They work in every trade. They sacrifice to raise a family. They care for our children at home. They defend our flag of life. And they are strong moms and brave kids. They are firefighters and police officers and border agents, medics and Marines. But above all else, they are Americans. And this capital, this city, this nation belongs entirely to them. Thank you, Mr. President. We love you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Can I shake your hands? Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you, President Trump. Thank you. Thank you so much. As Americans fill the world with art and music, they push the bounds of science and discovery, and they forever remind us of what we should never, ever forget. The people dreamed this country. The people built this country. And it's the people who are making America great again. We are standing up for America and for the American people. And we are also standing up for the world. It has been my highest honor to represent the United States abroad.